if God were not awesome, then how could this one people have survived this long among all the nations? The very fact that we're here. This Pardes Life is an original podcast production from the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. For more original Torah content, please visit www.elmad.pardes.org. E-L-M-A-D.pardes.org. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another exciting edition of This Pardes Life. My name is Svi Hirschfield. It's my privilege today to be learning with Leon Morris, who is the president of Pardes, uh, and also a wonderful teacher and Chavruta partner. And uh, he also has, and you'll see why this is connected, a long interest in liturgy and prayer and using religious language. So uh, it seems like you chose a text today for us that uh, touches on a lot of things that you care about. Thanks. Uh, Great to be here, and I'm looking forward to learning this with you. Okay, so let's do it. Tell us where we are, uh, and then we will get started. Okay, we're going to jump right in. Yeah, jump Uh, right in. So we are in uh, the Talmud Bavli, the Babylonian Talmud, Masechet Yoma, Daf Samech Tet Amudbet. And um, the subject here, the question that we're going to open with is, why are the men of the Great Assembly, the Anshe Knesset Hagadolah, why are they called that? Why are they called the men of the great assembly? Um, so I, I'm going to jump in and we'll, we'll unpack it together. Okay, great. Damar Rabbi Yoshua ben Levi, uh, Joshua ben Levi uh, said, Lama nikra shaman anshe chneset hagadola. Why are they called, why are they named the men of the great assembly? And then he answers it. Shehechziru atara liyoshna. Because they restored uh, God's crown to its previous glory. Glory. So uh, here, the text is playing with um, the formulation that we know from the Amidah, in which God we call God Ha'el Hagadol Hagibor Vahanora, the great mighty and awesome God. And uh, we'll see in this sugya, in this passage from from the Talmud, uh, that uh, this phraseology was something that Moses started. Uh, But we don't see that phraseology again until we get to the book of Nehemiah. And we read about uh, uh, an elaborate Torah reading and repentance uh, experience that Ezra leads, in which he repeats that wording uh, for the first time since Moses. So that's just a little background. And Ezra and Nehemiah, of course, are seen as part of this Ansheik Nesdagdola, the, the beginning very beginning of, of the Second Temple period. So this is all the association there. Those, if we find it in Nehemiah, that means that it's happening with the Ansheik Nesdagdola, these men of the Great Assembly. Right. So why are they called the men of the Great Assembly? Uh, because they restored uh, God's crown to its greatness, to its previous uh, glory. Atamoshe Amar Ha'el Hagadol Hagibor Vahanora. So Moshe Moses came in Sefer Devarim in Deuteronomy and said, uh, use this phrase, said, Ki Hashem Elohechem Hu Elohei Ha Elohim 
ba'adonei ha'adonim, ha'el ha'gadol ha'gibor v'hanora, asher lo yisafanim v'lo yikach shochad. For the eternal, your God is the God of gods, the Lord of lords, the great, mighty, and awesome, ha'el ha'gadol ha'gibor v'hanora, who, who does not regard uh, persons, uh, here it means, uh, I think, favoring one person over another, nor takes reward. Okay. So, so Moshe established this wording. Atayirmiya, uh, Jeremiah, came and said, Nochrim mekarkarin behechalo, aye noratav, lo amar nora. So Jeremiah came and uh, seeing the imminent destruction of the temple about to happen, said, uh, foreigners are uh, cavorting about your sanctuary. So where is God's awesomeness? And he didn't use the word nora, awesome, in describing God. And there the quote that the, uh, that the Gemara is, uh, is dealing with is from Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 18. chesed la'alafim u'mishalem avon avot el chek b'neihem achareihem ha'el ha'gadol ha'gibor Adonai tzvaot shemo. So uh, it's striking to the, uh, the rabbinic reader that he almost quotes verbatim what Moses had said in Deuteronomy, except he changes it and says, God shows mercy unto thousands and repays the iniquity of the fathers to the bosom of their children after them. The great, the mighty God, the Lord of hosts is his name, and skips Hanora. So what might have looked to a casual observer as like a paraphrase, uh, the Talmud is saying this is a deliberate omission on the part of Yermiah. Because he came and said, how could I describe God as Nora when I'm prophesying uh, or beginning to experience foreigners in the temple? And they're not in awe of God, obviously, because if they were in awe of God, they wouldn't be doing what they're doing in the Heichal, in the temple. So obviously God's awe is not around. It's on vacation. Atad Daniel, uh, Daniel came, Amar Nochrim mishtabdim babinyan, that foreigners are enslaving your sons, your children. The banav, right, okay. Aye gvurotav. Where is your gvura? Uh, where is your greatness? The lo amar gibor. And so therefore, uh, Daniel skipped the word uh, gibor in describing God. And here, the Gemara is referring to uh, Sefer Daniel, uh, Daniel chapter 9, verse 4, where Daniel says, The et palala ladonai Elohai, the et vade, the omra ana adonai ha'el hagadol vahanora, shomer habrit vahachesed lo havav ule shomre mitzvotav. So Daniel says, I, I prayed to God and I made a confession and said, O eternal, the great and awesome God who keeps the covenant with mercy and with those that love you and keep your commandments. So, uh, so here the formulation again is almost 
the same formulation as Moses, uh, but it skips out on uh, Hagibor, right? Ha'el, Hagadol, Vahanora. And that's because he's saying if God really is mighty and powerful, why would your children? Why be would his children be enslaved? Obviously, from from his perspective, somehow God's power is limited. And even though he includes the word Yirmiyahu has, Yirmiyahu includes the word he doesn't have, there's almost this sense of progression, Mm -hmm. right? That God, you know, when you read it, it's like God's not awesome and God Mm -hmm. is not mighty, at least as they're experiencing God in this moment. Right, right. Almost sounds insulting. It's pretty radical and pretty bold. I mean, it's a very powerful reading. We'll talk more about it, but I think it's a very powerful and provocative reading of, uh, of the Gemara. Okay, so here comes the Anche Knesset. The heroes of our story. Atu inhu va'amru. They came and they said, Adaraba. No, no, the opposite. Zohi gvurat gvuroto shekoveshet yitzro shenotein erech apayim l'rashayim. This is the, the greatness of God. What makes God hagibor is that God is able to uh, subdue God's uh, desire, and to be patient, uh, to be, what would you say, gracious, even with evil people. So this, this hits at the very issues of you know, why is there evil in the world and why, uh, why, do, uh, why aren't bad people instantly destroyed? And so whereas the Gemara understands each in their own way, uh, Daniel and Jeremiah is saying, no, 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 this somehow compromises uh, God's greatness. Uh, and we'll hear and we're talking about Gavura, so this is the, the Daniel reference, I think, right? It was Daniel that was uh, yeah, he's, the, the he's left out. Yeah, he's Yermiyahu is no Ra, he's awesomeness, right? Okay, so uh, they're saying, no, 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 Daniel, it's exactly the opposite, that God's greatness is that God doesn't destroy evil people. That God has uh, loving kindness, or erachapayim uh, l'rishayim. That God is uh, benef- beneficent, benevolent, even to evil people. And it's it's more striking to me. There's this tension. This, you know, it's saying don't look at jo- look at God from a particularist perspective, how mm. He treats the Jewish people, or what's happening to the Jewish people. But how does God treat the whole world? Mm. And in this case, in order for God to have you know, kindness towards the wicked of the rest of the world, then his people are going to have to suffer and uh, not get relief from that wickedness that's happening to them. I love that. Uh, I, I, I would maybe uh, you know, build on what you just suggested, which is to say that if we believe that God will be uh, generous and kind to us when we do evil, Right then, it has to be that whole nations that commit evil also are the beneficiaries mm. of God's uh, graciousness and kindness. Uh, and then the, uh, the the rabbis go on to say the eluhen norotav, and here's God's awesomeness: sheil male morao shalakadosh baruchu heach uma echad yecholalihit kayem ben haumot. That if God were not uh, awesome, then how could this one people have survived 
uh, this long among all the nations. The very fact that we're here, forget uh, the rabbis want to kind of say back to uh, to Yirmiyahu, to Jeremiah, uh, forget the fact that that foreigners will be destroying God's house, but you're you're still here. You you weren't destroyed along with God's house, and therefore God does deserve the appellation of Hanora. Mm. And then I, I love uh, I love the the ending question then here, and I think that this is a. Uh, this is kind of the obvious theological question for the Gemara to ask, and I, I think it's one that's very relevant uh, for us. Verabanan, hechi avdi hachi, ve'akri takanta de takin Moshe. How is it? Uh, how is it that the rabbis? Uh, how is it that the rabbis here referring to Jeremiah Yermio and Daniel, Daniel, right? How could they do this and uproot an ordinance that was issued by Moses? Moses had this particular formulation, Ha'el, Ha'gadol, Ha'gibor, Ha'norah. How could they come along and change it? Right. And Maybe, say, well, I don't see God as Norah, so right. I'm going to leave that line out. That who says out they have right a right, right? Who says that once, once Moshe determines who God is as the greatest prophet of all, then we all have to presumably stand in line or follow that line. How do these other other prophets who presumably understand their lesser prophets, how do they come along and say, well, well, Moshe, that's nice, but I'm not, I'm not going to go in line with that. I'm not going to go along. So here comes the Gemara and says, Amar Rabbi Elazar, Rabbi Elazar says, Mitoch shiyodin bahakadosh baruchu sha'amitihu lefichach lo kizvubo. Because uh, they knew that the Holy One of Blessing uh, is truth. And therefore, they could not speak falsely about God. That uh, this is a great defense of this somewhat shocking and outrageous response of of, uh, Jeremiah to leave out... uh, a, a description of God that was established by Moses and Daniel to leave out a description of God that was established by Moses. And, and here they're defended by saying, well, they looked out at their world and they saw that in, to their experience, this was not true of God. And, and therefore, because God is truth. They are permitted or celebrated for speaking the truth. Because they're not, if they had said those words and they did not feel them or believe them, they would be lying. Yeah. Even though, so it, what's so powerful here is they're not allowed to back out of it by saying, well, Moshe knew more than I did. So even though I don't see it and I don't feel it, I'll trust that Moshe knew what he was talking about and I'll stick with his language. If you, if I don't feel it at this moment, I'm not going to say it. Which opens up, I'm thinking more, thinking about liturgy, yeah. opens yeah. up a huge Pandora's box. And it's also fascinating, the order of the answers, because the rabbis solve it for us, right? In other words, one level of discussion is we can stick with Moshe's language, we just have to reinterpret what we mean by these terms. And that's how right, it starts out, by saying, well, why, does the, why do the Anshe Knesset Hagadola, why are they Hagadola? They're great because they restored this. So there's a little bit of a 
it sounds almost like a little bit of a uh, of a tochacha, of a uh, of a reproof of these prophets who came along and deleted descriptions of uh, or or adjectives concerning God's. Power. But in the end, we defend them. Yeah. So I think we're conflicted. I think this reflects. Uh, an ambivalence that is true for many of us. I know it's true for me. Could you elaborate on that fact? Uh, I knew that you would ask yes. that. So um, I think that in our, um, both in our prayer life and in our theological life, our, the way that we think about God, uh, there's always going to be tension between a reliance upon and a reverence for words and formulations and ideas that we inherit from the tradition and our own experience of the world. And um, I think it's a healthy tension. I think that uh, there was, um, I think there's a school that says, and this was more prevalent in, say, 19th century uh 19th century modern Judaism to say uh, we should only speak about God, particularly in in prayer, uh, by what we know is true. Uh, Jacob Petachowski, who was uh, a phenomenal scholar of of liturgy and of reform liturgy in particular, he writes uh, about the initial criteria of Reform liturgy in Germany and in uh, and in uh, mid to late nineteenth century America, as uh, prayer, it was argued, demands absolute honesty, and the corollary was understood to imply that the prayer book can only contain such statements as are factually correct, literally true, and historically verifiable. That's a very nineteenth century. Uh, Hyper modern perspective, uh, you know, truths are, are are revealing themselves all over to us as modern scientific people, and we should no longer have anything in our prayer book which can't be verifiable historically. Now we read that, and he he's describing it here. He's not advocating it. We read that, and you you smile because it just it's it's so dated, and many of us are probably thinking, well. You know what can we ver what can we verify uh, historically, and and what can we what can we know as true in this scientific sense that would allow us to say anything? So that's one extreme position, and then the on the other side of the spectrum is uh, not allowing for our own sense of how the world works and what we see in the world and, and allowing space for that in our religious lives. And I, I think these, these two are very much intention. Well, I think, but it's also in terms of what does this text want for me? One paradigm is to say, leaving out this issue of verifiable scientific truth, but one, one piece of this seems to be, listen, you have to have integrity. I would say amiti here means having integrity as opposed to truth in this verifiable sense of it. And as integrity, that means I can only use words I feel I can mean and really mean them when I say them. That if I pray, the words that come out, in other words, I'm not going to say I love you to somebody unless I love them. My, my, no, that would strip me of my integrity. On the other hand, 
The other thing this text seems to be telling me is words don't have fixed meaning. We can reinterpret. In other words, the answer when we're struggling with uh, this issue of integrity is not to jettison the language. The answer is to see if there's a way to interpret the language so it is still truthful for me, even if I don't mean by it what somebody else may have intended by it. I'm just sort of wondering... Uh, do you see this as like the 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 two options? Is it either or? Do you do you sense a combination of these two? So I, I think many of us are living in the tension between uh, those two positions. I, I think sometimes uh, saying words that we don't believe uh, force a kind of reinterpretation of those words. That's what you're speaking about. Um, sometimes. Uh, it's not a reinterpretation, but it's a shift in perspective. And I think that's what we have here when, when Chazal are saying to, uh, to Daniel and to Yermiyahu, no, uh, your read is incorrect, that uh, if you look at these same historical events that are forcing you to take out the word awesome and take out the word powerful, uh, there's another way of seeing things. There's another perspective. Uh, so I, I think sometimes it's a shift in perspective, and sometimes it's more of a uh, lolishma balishma. You know that you you don't mean it at first, but when you say it, you can come to mean it. Uh, Maybe in a different way. Probably in a different way. So you ready for my question? Uh, probably not. I didn't think ahead. so. Are there <laughs> things that I want an example of either? Are there things that you yourself? Don't say because you feel that it doesn't have integrity for you. Mm-hmm. Even it could be changes in the traditional liturgy that you have also taken on for yourself. And are there examples of things that you do say because you have successfully reinterpreted them for yourself? Yeah. So uh, there's a lot of examples. Um, I would say that uh, there are very few pieces of the traditional liturgy, which I would not say. And and for me, the criterion is less, I think, about truth and more about causing pain. Uh, so, uh, you know, I grew up uh, without saying, uh, you know, Shalom Asani Isha, thanking God for not making me a woman. And I I, I respect and I've, I've heard and I'm aware of all the... Uh, interpretations that can make those words uh, uh, not offensive. And, uh, but um, you know, I grew up with the, the Nusach, the, the right of saying, uh, you know, Shasani Bitsalmo, who made me in, in God's image. Uh, and uh, similarly, though less problematically for uh, Shiloh Asani Eved, who did not make me a slave, uh, of communities that say uh, Shasani Ben Chorin or Shasani Bat Chorin. Um, but most things that are challenging to my own belief in liturgy, I think fall into this category of either saying them and reinterpreting them uh, or saying them as, uh, we didn't talk about this this option, saying them as something aspirational. Uh, or hopeful. Uh, the classic, obvious example that I'm going to give is saying, uh, Baruch atah Hashem mechayeh ha-meitim. Blessed are you, God, who who resurrects the dead. And um, 
I think it's a real loss that uh, my own community, uh, the reform movement, took this out uh, long ago. Uh, it's made a reappearance. I think that's very fortunate. Uh, it's possible to – it's easy, I think, relatively easy to reinterpret it. Uh, look how God in our in, – uh, in the last century has resurrected the Jewish people. Look at how the Hebrew language has been resurrected. Um, you know, and we could come up with other examples as well. But I think it's also, uh, for me, it also represents hope. Uh, it really is my prayer uh, that I'll be reunited uh, one day with those who I've loved and, and lost, uh, that there will be an ultimate uh, answer and reckoning for all those people who died too young. So I think it's both reinterpretation and, uh, and saying, you know what, I, I don't know. And I hope and pray that this will be the case. So just to be devil's advocate for a minute, it seems to me, though, that those who took it out are sort of taking the Daniel Yermiahu position of basically saying, I'm not willing to say words that, even though I could reinterpret them, I know what people hear when I say them. I know what people think when I say them. I know what I'm meant to think, perhaps, when I say them. I'm not going to say them. Yeah, but here's where I would uh, I would champion the position of the rabbis. Ah, you're a rabbi. <laughs> um, and to say, no, 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 just, you know, either you're taking it too literally or you have too limited of an understanding of this word. And this word can mean something else, and let's expand our perspective, that God's greatness and God's awesomeness uh, can, can still be true even in a world where uh, our nation is, uh, is, is occupied and exiled, uh, even in a world where our temple is destroyed. It's still possible to see God's greatness and God's awesomeness. It, it really does, for me, raise the question of how important is theology to liturgy? In other words, I do sometimes think that the, the liturgy is constructed in a way that it does want to educate us to believe certain things about God and the world. Uh, at the same time, though, if we only prayed when we believed those things and with other people who believed those things— I don't know, I'm imagining we would come to shul and we'd have to do a little count. Okay, who believes in this yeah, right now at this yeah. moment? Who can say it along with me? I we'd mean, be left with, uh, without a minion yeah, for sure. Yeah, we'd be left without a minion. So what, what's, your, what's your take on that <laughs> yeah. in, 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 in that uh, dilemma there? So uh, I, I like to think of the Sidor and the Machzor, our prayer books, as the poetry of the Jewish people. And I can be having an internal dialogue uh, with those words. I can be reinterpreting, as we mentioned. I can be expanding my own thinking about what those words can still mean. But I do think, uh, whether it's in our liturgy or outside of our liturgy, that we do have to find a place in our religious lives to express our emet or uh, our uh, uh, amito. Our integrity, our our deepest truths, maybe. Um, and I think different communities are going to do that in, in different ways. Uh, I, I love 
the uh, the music of uh, Kobe O's, the contemporary Israeli singer and songwriter uh, from TPEX. And he has, uh, in one of my favorite songs, he's singing a a duet with his grandfather who is uh, who's deceased. And he has the cassettes of his grandfather singing uh, this very simple, traditional, faithful piyut. Uh, a liturgical poem. A liturgical poem saying, God, you are everything. Uh, you are the king and the ruler. And, and Kobe O's is singing. He's composing a song around this. And he's saying... I'm a little bit perplexed. I don't know how to call out what to call you. Elohim or Elohim. God or G-D. And the song, not just that line, the whole song is really a prayer. It's a contemporary prayer in which he's incorporating into his prayer the sense of distance that he feels uh, from God and how he wants to feel as close to God as his grandfather and how he, he is reassuring himself that everything will be okay. And he incorporates a little bit of Israeli cynicism into this, that he looks up to the heavens and he sees missiles coming down. Uh, it's a prayer in which he's been able to incorporate the distance between his grandfather's piety and his own search for piety. And I think there are other examples like this. Um, and I think that's very inspiring. Again, whether you're able to do it through prayer or in another form, to find a way inside of religious life to do what the Gemara sees Yermiahu and Daniel doing. To be honest before God. And to really express what you really, really feel. And to express doubt. I, I think it's Rabbi Jonathan Sachs who said, you know, we need to understand doubt as part of a life of faith. And, uh, and I think that's part of what's going on here. Uh, they're not doubting. The Gemara isn't suggesting that they're doubting God's existence, but they are doubting God's power and God's awesomeness. And, uh, and, and they're defended in the end. There is still a sense, I think, I still take this also as a critique of those who just focus on getting the words said, that have made prayer into a another required ritual behavior uh, that we have to do, perhaps like putting on tefillin, like a host of other things we can talk about. And maybe we've lost a little bit of that, uh, the challenge of prayer actually being uh, a real a, a command to really speak from the heart to God mm. about where you are with God. I don't know. I feel like we, of all the things we teach, I don't know if we're teaching that. We teach a lot of the mechanics. We might even teach what the words mean, but are we really challenging people when they walk into synagogue to to speak from their heart, and do we make space for that? Beautiful. Uh, I I think it's a beautiful read, and and that this whole passage, this whole sugya, is about a kind of you know formulation that just rolls off our tongues. It's it's the first blessing of the Amidah. It's in the Avot, um, and so to take that and to present an example of whoa, each of these words is 
uh, potentially problematic, and they were problematic for the prophets who we've rebranded here as as our rabbis, uh, and maybe they should be problematic for us, or maybe at least we should occasionally consider the impact of of those words and wrestle with them and struggle with them. What do you do when you're struggling to pray? Do you have anything that you, you try to do to pull you into the mood to challenge yourself when you feel like it's, you're just not there? Well, I think silence is very effective. Uh, and I think uh, very often I feel like there are too many words, too many words for me to give significant consideration to individual words uh, like we have here in, uh, in our passage. Too much talking. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the Siddur is a pretty long book at this point. Yeah, I think music helps a lot. And do you, do you find that you pray with more passion with certain people around you? Are there people who inspire you in your tefillah? Well, I think it's always easier to pray when you are surrounded by people who you feel like they are really praying. Uh, I think we are, most of us, I know I am, are, are very much socially influenced. So, you know, when I think of uh, what I would describe as a great prayer experience, a great davening experience, it's when I'm in a, an environment where uh, people are really into it. Uh, I felt that this past uh, Shabbat at the at the Pardes Shabbaton with our uh, with our year program students and our education students, they seem pretty into it. Yeah, yeah, and so I was too because of them. So, uh, what struck me, I think, in something that you said, I want to come back to it. That a lot of us seem to focus on prayer as being this intense, sort of positive, warm encounter. Uh, with God on a certain level where the words work for us and we connect to them. But you also point out there's a certain authenticity in prayer being a moment for maybe protest or an expression of doubt or uh, a sense of struggle. Uh, I'm wondering, you know, it, it, you know, where do you go with that? So to connect it with our sugya, our Talmudic uh, passage that we were looking at, I think what you're really asking is... Um, Yermiyahu's prayer, Jeremiah's prayer, and Daniel's prayer, uh, by leaving out a particular description of God, uh, wasn't just that they shaped a prayer that had a sense of integrity for them, and in order to do that, they had to leave it out. But maybe there was an element of uh, protest or an element of like the prayer that they offered itself depends on us knowing what word they did not say. And maybe that's a kind of additional prayer that they're offering, that, you know, would that I could say that God is Hanora or Hagibor, maybe. And I'm thinking, I'm thinking of that Kobe O song that I mentioned, and I'm also thinking of um, uh, some of what we find in, uh, particularly in, in contemporary non-Orthodox uh, prayer books themselves, uh, I, I had the privilege of, of being involved with the new American uh, reform machzor for the, uh, the High Holy Day uh, prayer book. And one of my colleagues uh, uh, 
Shelley uh, Martyr, uh, composed a vidui for the 21st century, and it's really a confession. And uh, it's it's a vidui, it's a confession really of longing. I think it speaks to this idea that we just put out there, and I, I'd love to share it. Let's do it. Okay. So he writes, we confess, in our generation, faith is partial and frayed, like an old talus threadbare and torn, faith has been worn thin by doubts, torn by ambivalence. What do we see when we look at its knotted fringe? Reminders of mitzvot or something tangled coming apart? A reminder of all our misgivings? We confess in our generation love of Torah is tenuous, indifference to communal obligation profound. We allow our differences to divide us, resentments fester, and a small people is made smaller by disunity and strife. We fail to notice the signs of your presence in the world, and we forget to lament your absence from our lives. Uncertainty too easily turns to skepticism. We allowed hard questions to consign religion to irrelevance. Our forebears called you Tzor Yisrael, Tzor Olamim, Rock of Israel, Rock of all time and space. We confess our longing for the faith that sustained them. We confess our need and our desire to attach our hopes to theirs. Wow. So there's something profoundly sad uh, in that, in this sense, like this real sense of something lost. Uh, and really not necessarily knowing how to go back. And yet leaving open the possibility, uh, and really not just leaving open, inviting the possibility for uh, a new, deeper, richer, more committed relationship to uh, to emerge. And, and I'm thinking that it's something like an invitation, as we read in, in the, in the, uh, in the sugya at the beginning, about the Anshe Knesset Hagadolah, the men of the Great Assembly, Shehechziru Atarali Yoshna, they restored the crown to its original splendor. So I, I think the question that something like this and our conversation leads us to is what would a restoration look like? And maybe original splendor, maybe, uh, uh, maybe, Liyoshna. Uh, is not exactly the same as it was before. So maybe by the time the Anche Knesset Hagadolah restored the phraseology, Ha'el Hagadol Hagibor Vahanora, maybe they understood it differently than Moshe Rabbeinu, than Moses understood it. Uh, they had already done this work of reinterpreting it in light of Jeremiah's protest and in light of Daniel's protest. So they restored it, but restoring it doesn't mean uh, it's being understood in exactly the same way that it originally was used. And and this beautiful prayer by Shelley Martyr that I just read, uh, I think it's kind of doing the same thing. Saying, help us, we confess that we have lost the way to understand how we can call you Tzor Yisrael and Tzor, uh, tzor Olamim. And, and help us find the way to be able to call you that again. You know, it's, a, it's like that great paradox right, that, you know, we dive into God and ask for kavanah. 
Mm. Right. In other words, uh, I pray that I can. I, I, I pray that I can pray well. My takeaway from what you were saying just now is that restoration doesn't have to be replication, but there's still that struggle is still present. And I think my one of my 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 favorite takeaway from all this is when you spoke about the tension or the struggle, you had a big smile on your face. You know, you didn't have the sense of somebody who's struggling in the sense of, oh, I can't believe I have to try to figure out how to say these words and try to make them meaningful for myself and be authentic and still be part of a tradition. But it seems you like being in that place. Like, I think it gives you pleasure. It gives you joy to, uh, quote unquote, struggle with these things. And and to uh, to in, to experience as a privilege the challenge of restoring words. I mean, I think that's what this passage is is really about. Uh, that our homework, our assignment, our our mission, our misima is to figure out a way that we can say ha'el, ha'gadol, ha'gibor, v'hanora. So I guess that leaves us wondering, who is the Anshe Knesset Hagadola? Who are the, I'll say, people? Mm. Where's the great assembly today? Uh, and where do we go looking for them? But maybe we'll leave that as another question for uh, another time. I, I wanna... think the short answer is it's all of us. That we're reading this Gemara, and I think we're called upon to be the Anshe Knesset Hagadola. And I can't just wait around for somebody else to do it? <laughs> oh, that's, that's a little disheartening. So I want to thank you very, very much for your time, for your insights, for your passion and joy, and I look forward to more opportunities with you in the future. Thank you thank very much. You, this Pardes Life is an original podcast production from the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. For more original Torah content, please visit www.elmad.pardes.com. E-L-M-A-D dot Pardes, P-A-R-D-E-S dot O-R-G.